It's important for us to realize that the festival of Shavuos, of course, the day that we celebrate the receiving of the Torah, the revelation at Sinai, the Ten Commandments, it is not a discrete holiday. It's not limited, constrained to one day in the calendar year. Our sages tell us that just as Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the year, sets the tone and the tenor for the year upcoming, everything that's going to happen to you is kind of set into motion on the day that kickstarts the calendar. Shavuos is the festival which is akin to the Rosh Hashanah for Torah. It sets the tone of the relationship that we're going to have with Torah over the course of the calendar year to come. And therefore, it's important for us to realize that the festival, it's not just one day to celebrate, it's a day to absorb the inspiration and the lessons that we're going to take with us for the year ahead. And in that spirit, I wanted to share several thoughts regarding the Book of Ruth and the lessons that it contains and to try to identify the takeaway messages for Shavuos and the year ahead. Now, some of the ideas we've discussed briefly in the past, and even the ideas that we've discussed in the past, we're going to try to infuse them with some new insight, new light. But we also prepared a whole new approach that covers the entire Book of Ruth that I think ties together the various themes of the festival and gives us a new perspective about Torah for the year to come. Now, the book of Ruth, it's a short book, it's got four chapters, and it doesn't immediately have a connection to the festival of Shavuos. You know, it tells a story about a family, a wealthy family, lives in Bethlehem, uh, a father, a mother, and two sons, and they decide to leave. There's a famine, and they want to leave. Our sages tell us that they were very rich, and there were too many people who needed their help, and they couldn't deal with it, and they said, you know what, we're out. And they travel... They travel east, they cross over the Jordan, and they go to the land of Moab. And the land of Moab, the two sons marry into Moabite royalty. They marry two princesses, Ruth and Arpa. Now, things very quickly sour on this family. They lose their money. The father dies, and the two sons die, and you have Naomi the mother, the widow, and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Arpah, also widows, and they don't have anything, and they decide to head back to Israel, head back to Bethlehem. The famine has subsided, and maybe they'll get help. Maybe they'll get what they need back in Israel. And maybe the, the critical part of the story is what happens next. Ruth, Arpah, Naomi, they begin to head back. But then Naomi starts to discourage them, dissuade them. Stay here, your Moabites, your princesses. Stay where you, where you're more comfortable. Go back to your family. Go back to your religion. Stay here. And then the paths diverge. Arpa says, okay. Eventually she accedes to Naomi's guidance and she goes back. And Ruth, she persists and she stays with her and she travels with her back to to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, they're trying to figure out how to get food, and they're trying to get figure out how to get redemption, namely how to find a relative to marry Ruth and to provide a legacy for her deceased husband who passed away without any children. Eventually, the wealthy landowner, very old landowner, Boaz, marries Ruth, and our status tell us that they were together for exactly one night, and then he died. But would you know it, Ruth becomes pregnant, and she has a son, and that son has another son, and that grandson has another son, and that's one of the most important people in Jewish history, and that is King David, and that is how the book ends. The last word of the book is David, the great-grandson of Ruth. And of course, everyone's trying to figure out what is the connection between this really interesting and poignant story about about this great heroine Ruth and the fact that she's the the matriarch of David and the Davidic dynasty, the monarchy of the Jewish people. What's the connection between this book and the festival of Shavuos? And of course, there's many different ideas and lessons that have been proposed to reconcile this question. 
So one idea that I heard from my grandfather is that Ruth, she is a convert. Moreover, we learn a lot of the laws of conversion from Ruth. And my grandfather speculated, well, Sinai is also a mass conversion experience. And in fact, the laws of conversion are partially learned from Sinai, what happened at Sinai, and partially learned from Ruth. And thus, there is some sort of intimate connection between what happened to the Jewish people, what they underwent at Sinai, the prep for Sinai, and the experience of Sinai, and what what Ruth heralds and what she represents. And in fact, the law tells us that the Jewish people, they became Jewish. They entered the covenant with three things. Number one, they had circumcision. Number two, they immersed in a mikvah. They immersed in a ritual bathwaters. And finally, they brought a sacrifice. And that is what happened to the Jewish people historically at Sinai. And the Ramam explains what happens when they, by the, by the Exodus, they had the pastoral offering, the ritual pastoral offering. And at that time, if you were uncircumcised, you couldn't participate. So everyone circumcised. A few months later, everyone bathed before Sinai. And that's the equivalent of going into the mikvah. And also at Sinai, there was a sacrifice that was done. And that three, those three steps provided the processes, the procedure, the protocol for conversion. And similarly, tells us the Rambam in the future for generations. When someone wants to convert, they want to join, they too have to follow this three-pronged process, circumcision and immersion in the mikvah and bringing in a sacrifice. So there's a very deep insight, I think, that's being conveyed here. When someone converts, in effect, it's a reenactment of Sinai. There is this acceptance of Torah. And as a result... There's this eternal transformation. As a result, the Jewish people, they started off this story as a nation that's similar to all other nations. Yes, they have great forebearers, and yes, they have a bright destiny, but ultimately, they weren't Jewish yet. They weren't God's people. That relationship wasn't cemented. They had to undergo this process. And this process, the climax of this process, is Sinai. And then we're told this could be kind of put in a bottle. You could encapsulate this process and it could be repeated in the future. And I think for us, the takeaway is just as when someone converts, I say just tell us that a person who converts, they have a clean slate. They're like a child that was born. They're free of sin. They've been cleansed. They start anew. So too, we just kind of relived or we are reliving our conversion, every Shavuos, and so too we start the new year of Torah with a clean slate. So that's, I think, one idea that's been suggested to understand the very deep connection between what's happened to the Jewish people on Shavuos, the Sinai experience, and the story of Ruth and what she represents. That's one idea. A second idea, and again one that we've mentioned briefly in the past, is that Shavuos and Sinai that was the time where the Jewish people accepted Torah. And by doing that, they opted for one way of living in lieu of a second way of living. They were idolaters. And they abandoned that. They were like the Egyptians, and they departed that. And they adopted a new way of life. They forfeited their previous identity, and they embraced a new identity. And here we see Ruth doing the same thing. She too, she descended from royalty. And she had the easy option to stay home, to stay as a Moabite princess, and to stay where she was more comfortable. Yet what did she do? She forfeited it all for Torah. And thus she embodies the commitment that was done at Sinai. And in fact, the Rambam, again, when he talks about Torah study, he reiterates the point that it's not possible for someone to have both. 
You have to give up something. You have to forfeit something if you want to truly fulfill the mitzvah of Torah. And as he says it, to be crowned with the crown of Torah, you're going to need to forfeit something. And I think Ruth, she really is the paragon of that. She forfeited everything, her family, her comfort, her homeland. She gave it all up for Torah, for the Jewish people, for her faith. And thus, she teaches us how it's supposed to be done. And I want to maybe take this to a deeper level. It's really interesting if you read the story you find two sisters-in-law. We've, according to the Medrash, they're actually sisters as well. They're two princesses. And they've spent 10 years with this Jewish family. Of course, their husbands have died. The father-in-law has died. But obviously, they've, they've been changed from this experience. And now, and now the mother-in-law, Naomi, is going back to Israel. And both of them are inclined to join. It's an amazing thing. They're willing to give up their comfort, their royalty for Torah, for the Jewish people. But what happens? This is described in the very beginning of, of the book of Ruth. They start heading with her and Naomi starts to push them away, to repel them. You did kindness with me. You did kindness with the deceased. The Almighty is going to repay you. Go back home. Go back home, they, they kiss, they have a very emotional parting, go back home. So she starts deflecting them, pushing them away. And both of them insist on staying with her. No, we're coming with you. Both of them are committed to the cause. But again, Naomi pushes her away. Don't come with me. What do you expect? I'm going to have more kids now? I'm old, I'm not going to have any more kids. And even if I do have kids, how long is it going to take for my kids to grow up to be marriageable material for you. Well, why are you sticking with this old widow? What do you want from me? Can I possibly mother another another son or two more sons for you to marry? It's not going to happen. Just go back to your family. Go back to your home. Go back to where you came from. And again, there's crying. And again, there are hugs and kisses. And Arpa says, Shalom, ciao, I'm out. But Ruth, she persists. And again, Naomi tries to send her home. Look, your sister-in-law, she went back. She went back to her land, to her nation, to her gods. Follow her. And what does Ruth respond? Ruth says, don't mention it again. I'm not leaving. Wherever you go, I go. Wherever you sleep, I sleep. Your nation is my nation. Your God is my God. Where you die, I die. Where you're buried, I'm buried. Only death is going to separate us two. When she makes that statement, she's demonstrating that she is totally in. And there is nothing that you could do to change her mind. The only thing that will separate the two, Ruth declares, is death. That's it. We see something very fascinating and very powerful, I think. Two people are both insisting that they want it. They both want it. Arpa wants it. Ruth wants it. And you know what? Naomi tries to push them away. And they say, no, we want it. We're coming with you. But then she ups the ante. And she says, what are you going to get out of this? Just go back home. It's so much simpler like that. And what happens? Arpa yields. She gives in and she goes back home. And no matter how much Ruth is deflected, no matter how much Naomi tries to push her away, she says with such finality, with such determination, with such commitment, there's nothing you could possibly say or do. I am totally on board. Where else have we seen such commitment? I think that is the idea of Shavuos. The Almighty presents the Jewish people with Torah. And then Talmud tells us that he went to every other nation. And every other nation says, well, let's evaluate it. Every other nation says, let's look at the pros and the cons, and let's make an informed decision. And the Jewish people say, na'aseh v'nishma. We are in 100%, even though it's illogical, even though it doesn't make sense, even though we don't know what's in it, we're in. The determination that kickstarted Sinai is embodied 
with Ruth. And the reason why she's the great heroine is because she mustered up the tenacity, the courage, the fortitude to say whatever comes, come what may, I'm in. I'm on board and nothing's going to change that. The only way to do it, you gotta, you'll have to shoot me. You'll have to shoot me. The only way that you can get rid of me is if I'm dead. I had a very interesting thought. The Midrash tells us that Ruth lived a long time. Her husband for a night, Boaz, died, but she became pregnant and she had a son, Ovid, who had a son, Yishai, who had a son, David, who had a son, Solomon. Many generations already we know that uh, descended from Ruth. The Midrash tells us that Ruth lived to see Solomon crowned. So not only did she live her son's lifetime, Ovid, Yishai, Jesse, David, Solomon. She lived a very, very old, very, very old, long, fruitful life. And she witnessed not only her great-grandson David crowned and 40 years ruling, her great-great-grandson Solomon, she witnessed him crowned as well. And the question that I had is, you know, why does the Midrash need to tell us this? Why did they need to tell us, you know, that she witnessed Solomon being crowned? So here's my solution. The Talmud in the book of Shabbos tells us that when the Jewish people said, we will do and we will listen, and they preempted their commitment to action before they actually knew what was in it. At that time, the Almighty sent 600,000 angels, and each one of them holding two crowns, and placed these two crowns upon the Jewish people, each one of the Jewish people, one for Naseh, one for we will do, and one for Nishma, and one for we will listen. The commitment of Sinai the commitment of Shavuos earns someone two crowns. Ruth, she is the embodiment of this total commitment. Nasavanishma, we're in. Come what may. She represents Shavuos, even though it's many centuries hence. And therefore, it's fitting that she too is also rewarded with two crowns. And therefore, the lesson of the day, perhaps we could say, the lesson of Shavuos is that it's a time for us to become great. But the way that we become great is to have to have the commitment of the decision of Ruth. And that will be the full reenactment of Sinai. And that will result in us getting, so to speak, the two crowns. Ruth deserved the two crowns. And therefore, the Almighty made it. She's going to witness both David and Solomon being crowned. There is a very interesting teaching in the Talmud. The Talmud tells the backstory of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva became one of the most important figures in Jewish history because at the time where all the Jews were being massacred and all the, all the sages were being killed and Torah was being very vulnerable, Rabbi Akiva rebuilt Torah. And in fact, the Torah that we have today, the oral Torah that we have today, comes via the line of Rabbi Akiva. But he did not have very auspicious beginnings. The Talmud tells us that at the age of 40, he was still an ignorant shepherd. And he knew nothing. He even wanted to read. Maybe he had, well, Talmud does say, Talmud does indicate at least, that he had great character. But he was not a scholar at all. And he has this metamorphosis. He has this epiphany where he sees the water dripping on the rock. We know the story. And the water bores a hole in the rock. And he says, well, if water which is soft could penetrate the rock which is hard, Torah which is hard could penetrate my heart, I'm going to go study. And when he makes that decision, the daughter of his master, the person who he worked for, Rachel, the daughter of Kalba Savua, she's so impressed by him and she sees his potential she says, okay, you go study, and I'll marry you. And the new father-in-law can't believe what his silly daughter did. Any man in the country I could get for you. And you decide to marry Akiva, the ignorant shepherd? And promptly, he makes an ender. He makes a legally binding vow that she cannot benefit from his assets. So she's married to Akiva, and the Talmud says they're living in a cave, and they all they have is some hay to to rest upon, and all they have nothing, 
And then the Almighty sends Elijah the prophet as a beggar coming and saying, do you have any hay that I could borrow? And that gave him a little bit of inspiration. Look, there are people who have even worse than we do. At least we have hay and they don't even have hay. But anyhow, the story has a very happy ending. Eventually, Akiva goes to study. And this Akiva, the ignorant chef, becomes Rabbi Akiva. After 12 years, he has 12,000 students. After 24 years, he has 24,000 students. And he comes back to his hometown. At this time, he's recognized as the greatest sage of the land. And the whole community throngs to go visit the great sage. The Talmud tells that his wife was there. No one knew that she was his wife. She has to elbow her way to the front. And the students say, what are you doing here? And the Rebbe responds famously, Sheli, v'shelachem, shela, my Torah, your Torah, is really her Torah, she sent me here. And then he has an audience with his father-in-law, Kalba Savua. His father-in-law does not know that this Akiva, the greatest sage of the land, is actually his son-in-law. He's disowned his family. He's disowned his daughter. He's not interested in them anymore. But now in his old age, he regrets it. And he wants to reconnect with his daughter. And he wants to annul the vow that he made many years prior. So what do you do when you want to annul the vow? So there is some halachic precedence for the fact that you go to the sage and you say, listen, I didn't know at the time what I would actually feel if I did the vow. I didn't know how how bad I would feel to disown my daughter. Can I annul the vow? And Rabbi Kiva says, well, would you have made the vow if your new son-in-law that you despised, if you knew that he would go study Torah? So Kalbasavu, the father-in-law, responds, well, if I knew he would study even one Mishnah, even one law, I'd be okay with him. So he says to him, okay, nice to meet you. Shalom Aleichem, I'm your son-in-law. I know more than one Mishnah. And the vow was annulled. That's the Talmud. Now, the Tosfos commentaries asks a profound question. They say that, yes, there is this halachic carve-out to annul a vow. But the reason for the annulment of the vow cannot come subsequently. Meaning that you could only get rid of the vow provided you didn't realize how it would make you feel. But suppose something else happens that changes the calculus and it happens post-facto, well, that would not be grounds to annul the vow. And therefore, Rabbi Kiva, at the time of the vow, was not a great Torah scholar. So the fact that he subsequently became a great Torah scholar, that should not be used as grounds to annul the vow. And the Tosfos gives a very important answer. It's relevant to our subject. Tosfos says, yes, indeed. Rabbi Kiva was not a Torah scholar at the time of the vow. But you know what he did have? He had already made the decision to go study. The decision he did make. The implementation he did not make. But Tosfos says, if someone makes a decision... To go study, the normal way that things will ensue is that he will become a great man. He will become a a great Torah scholar. And therefore, the fact that he became a great Torah scholar was already in play once he made that decision. If you think about it, Rebekiva, an ignorant shepherd, very advanced in age, relatively. And yet... What we're told here in the sources is that just the decision to go study already mandates, already guarantees that he's going to become a great sage. That's the lesson of Shavuos. Shavuos is the time to make this acceptance of Torah. And by doing that, unlocking the keys to become a great person. If someone makes that decision completely, then that's it. The hard part's past them, and now it's just smooth sailing. Well, maybe not smooth sailing, but they have that decision, that fortitude to help them get through the choppy waters and to help them progress along their trajectory.
Think about it. Many, many people go to study. And only few of them become great people. What's the difference? The difference is, is that Arpa also wanted to join Naomi. She said, I'm in. And Naomi pushed her away and she said, I'm still in. But ultimately, when things got heated, she left. A little bit of resistance knocked her off her plans. And therefore, her commitment to go was not with the same degree of Nasavanishma, we're all, all in. Rabbi Akiva, he went like Ruth. He said, Nasavanishma, I will do, I will listen, I will do whatever it takes. And that decision alone, that's enough to ensure that he indeed will become great. The Talmud actually tells us what happened to Arpa. She also has an interesting epilogue to her story. The Talmud tells us that on that night, she went back to Moab and she went back to her sinful ways and went back to her idolatrous ways. And already that night, the way the Talmud says it, many organs were in her and even a dog. Basically, she descended and spiraled very, very, very quickly. And she has a very famous son. Her son is actually Goliath, the evil monster who wants to kill as many Jews as possible. And isn't it interesting? Two sisters-in-law, they start off the same way. Sister, sisters-in-law, both of them are in, both of them want to join the Jewish people. One has the Ruth commitment and one doesn't. And isn't it interesting that their paths diverge so so sharply that Ruth's heir, David, and Arpa's heir, Goliath, are on totally polar opposites of the spectrum and are, in fact, these rivals representing the different halves of these trajectories. And what's the difference? The difference is, is one had a decision that was kind of flaky. And one's decision was so ironclad You're going to need to shoot me if you want to get rid of me. That's it. That's Ruth. And that's why she merited David. I want to speculate. This is me speculating. How is it possible that Orpa, the other sister-in-law, the other sister, she ended up so bad that it wasn't like she you know, gradually went back to her idolatrous ways and things ended up okay. Ruth becomes great, becomes this great heroine. We have a whole book that we read about her. She's the grandmother, great, great-grandmother of David and the matriarch of Messiah. There's almost no greater honor that someone could possibly have. And her system was only slightly different. She also wanted to do that. But she went south. Maybe we could speculate that when someone has a desire, they have good intentions, but they're not ironclad. They're not actualized in that way. It actually is going to backfire and end up worse. Maybe, this is me speculating, maybe if Arpa said, you know what, you're right. She didn't, she didn't halfway it. She didn't say, you know what, let me come. And after she was pushed away once, she said, let me come nonetheless. She kind of, she made a decision halfway. She said, I want to come with you. She came. She was pushed away. She persisted. But then she was pushed away and she left. Half commitment is actually worse than no commitment at all. Maybe when someone kind of has the inspiration, has the good intentions, but ultimately that does not prevail, that's actually going to backfire very quickly and going to result in the complete opposite because you had the good intentions. You were kind of halfway home, but you didn't bring it to the finish line. And not bringing it to the finish line is worse than not getting started at all. Maybe. That's the speculation. So we have two ideas over here. We have number one, the idea that Ruth embodies conversion, which is the transformation that happens at Sinai. And also we have the idea that Ruth... She embodies the decision that has with it the commitment that's so ironclad, so bulletproof, that it will ensure that greatness will ensue. And that, of course, is what the Jewish people said at Sinai. Nasa Manishma, we're in 100%. 
And therefore, we read her story, we channel her story to get in the zone of what it takes for us to become great. I want to suggest a new approach, an idea perhaps that permeates the whole book, and I think it relates, it dovetails really nicely with the ideas that we've shared. Of course, the heroine of the story is Ruth. And like we said, she's a Moabite princess, and she converts to Judaism and eventually becomes the antecedent of David. What do we know about her pedigree? What do we know about Moabites, and what do we know about Ruth's antecedents? It's really interesting that the more we study about Ruth's background, the more we we should be surprised by her character. The origin of the Moabite nation is very ignominious. In fact, it's told in chapter 19 of Genesis, after the Almighty turns over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot is left with his two daughters. His wife was on the journey, but that ended up quite saltily for her. His married daughters, they remained in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he has just him and his daughters. And they're in a cave, and they're convinced that the world is over. And these two daughters, they discuss with each other, there's no men in the land to marry us, and we have to repopulate the world. And there's only one man, and it's Lot, our dad. So they ply him with alcohol, and the first night, the elder daughter sleeps with Lot, and the second night, the younger daughter sleeps with Lot, and both of those encounters result in conception. And the older daughter has a son, and she names him Moab, Moab, which means from my father, Ava's father, Moab, from my father. And the younger daughter has a son named Amon, or Ben-Ami, the son of my nation, which is kind of hinting that this comes from, this is an internal job, and that is the forbearer of the nation of Amon. So isn't it interesting? We have two nations that the Jewish people encounter. One of them is the nation of Moab that comes from Lot and his oldest daughter. And of course, Ruth comes from that, from that nation. And then you have the second nation, the nation of Ammon that comes from Ben-Ami, which is the younger daughter of Lot. Now, when the Jewish people, as already a full-fledged nation, leaving Egypt, they have to encounter lots of different uh, nations on their way to Israel. Of course, they have the war with Amalek. They have the war with Midian. And then they're told, okay, the two nations, Moab and Ammon, you don't make, don't make war with them. Why? So the Talmud tells us because, well, Moab, that's going to have a very important descendant. That is Ruth, of course, the great, great grandmother of, of David and of Messiah. And Ammon, the other nation, is also going to have an important child, and that is Naamah, the wife of Solomon, and the mother of King Rechavam, Solomon's heir. So isn't it interesting, when you look at the the shameful, the scandalous, the ignominious origins of this great heroine, you have Ruth, such an important figure in Jewish history, and yet she descends from such shameful origins. Moreover, our sages tell us that if you look at Lot's two daughters, you have the older daughter, and she names her son Moab from my father. You think about the kid going to school. Why are you called Moab? What's he going to say? Well, my mother and my grandfather had a baby together, and therefore my mother decided it was a good idea to name me Moab from my father. It's a very crass Coarse name. Ben Ami, the other, the other cousin, or I guess closer than that genealogically, the other one is called Ben Ami, the son of my nation, which is more ambiguous. So Talon points out that there is a difference between kind of the sensitivity of these two sisters. The older sister is a little bit more coarse, a little bit more crass, a little bit more overt about what had happened. She wasn't embarrassed about it. 
Whereas the younger sister was a little bit more embarrassed, a little bit more sensitive, and she gave the name Ben Ami. And therefore, says the Talmud, when we are told that we have to avoid war with these two nations, the nation of Moab are told not to make war with them. The nation of Ammon were told not to harass them or oppress them in any way. And what you can imply from that is that in Moab, we're supposed to oppress. We're supposed to harass them a little bit, but not Ammon. And the difference is, what what could possibly be the difference? Two belligerent nations, we're not supposed to make war with either one of them because of their important descendants, but one of them was supposed to harass. Here's the difference. Because one nation, the Moabite nation, is, is a much more crass, much more immodest nation, therefore we're supposed to harass them. Can't make war with them, harass them. But the other nation, a little bit more sensitive, don't make war and don't harass or oppress them at all. So isn't it interesting? We have Ruth that comes from this very immodest backstory. And not only that, two people came from that same kind of story and she came from the one that was even more immodest from the Moabites. And of course we know in the book of Numbers... The Moabite women are conscripted to go cause the Jewish people to sin. They seduce the Jewish people to sin, to sleep with them, and ultimately to do idolatry with them. So we have a nation that from its very origin is connected to immodesty. Not only that, it's the more immodest of the two immodest sisters. And not only that, we see how their nation is behaving. So this is a nation that really represents immodesty. And yet, Ruth is the paragon of modesty. In fact, in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, Boaz, the wealthy landowner, he sees all the poor people picking up the leftover, the leftover crops, and he right away notices Ruth. And he asked his aides, who is that young maiden? And the Talmud says, wait a minute, Boaz is one of the heroes of the Jewish people. In fact, he's one of the judges, the, the, the actual titular heads of the Jewish nation. Is it appropriate for him to be looking at the girls and noticing them? What does it mean? What did he notice in Ruth? So the Talmud gives us the answer. He noticed that she had superlative wisdom and superlative modesty. And it describes that she would collect it in a different way. Everyone else was kind of running around, exposing themselves, as long as they grab as much grain as possible. And she's, you know, she's much more sensitive. She's much more dignified. She's much more noble. She, she's much more modest. And the Midrash adds, all the other women would lift their skirts and run around and exposing themselves. All the other women would flirt with the farmhands. And Ruth doesn't do any of that. So Ruth symbolizes modesty. And here's the question. How do we have this contradiction? We have Ruth, the paragon of modesty, emerging from the most immodest upbringing. How is Ruth super modest when all the Moabite women are the least modest? And in fact, of the two sisters, the daughters of Lot, she comes from the one that's even more immodest. Question A, how does the modesty descend from gross immodesty? Now, the nation of Moab is disincluded from the Jewish people. In fact, there's a verse in Deuteronomy and Devarim 23, verse 4 and 5, where we're told that even if there's a Moabite or an Ammonite, these two nations, convert, they cannot intermarry the Jewish people. And in fact, the Talmud says, well, it's only a male, not a female. Why are converts from the Moabite and the Ammonite nation disinclude the Jewish people. Why can't they intermarry with the Jewish people? So the verse says, they did not preempt you with food and water when you left Egypt. When you left Egypt, you were wary, you were hungry. They should have, they should have come out with a plate of cookies and some milk. They should have given you some provisions and they didn't do that. Not only that, they hired Bilaam, the sorcerer, to come, to come curse you and try to decimate you. And the commentaries point out, it wasn't just that they didn't have kindness. They had anti-kindness. They didn't have even reciprocal kindness. 
Think about it. Who saved Lot? The great-great-grandfather of Ammon and Moab. It was Abraham. At the very least, when someone does for you a great favor, you can reciprocate. And not only don't they reciprocate, they try to deliberately imperil the Jewish nation. Kindness is the hallmark of the Jewish people. The Talmud even says, if somebody, if you see someone that's not kind or merciful or bashful, you know for sure they're not, they're not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our nation, baked into our spiritual DNA, are these characteristics. And therefore, the nation of Ammon, the nation of Moab, these have characteristics of anti-kindness, and therefore they are unwelcome from integrating into our nation. So what kind of nation does Ruth come from? Not only it's a very immodest nation, it's a very unkind, even anti-kind nation. Yet Ruth is the paragon of kindness. In fact, the Midrash asked the question, why do we read the book of Ruth? There's no laws in it, not laws of purity and impurity, not laws of what's permitted, what's prohibited. Why was this book even written? And the Talmud tells us, because this is a book about kindness. And it teaches you how to do kindness, and it teaches you the reward for kindness. And parenthetically, it's been suggested that the Torah is really about kindness. And therefore, it's appropriate to read the book about kindness, namely the book of Ruth, on the day that we receive the Torah, which is in general about kindness. What kindness did Ruth do? So there's a whole list. Of course, the sages talk about a whole list of things that she did. So first of all, even though their husbands had died, they took care of burying them, taking care of them, preparing their shrouds for them. Moreover, they were owed a dowry. They were owed a, a severance payment with the death of their spouses, and they could have demanded it from the estate, from Naomi, but they forgave it. And this is, by the way, both of them, both Ruth, Ruth and Orpah. Moreover, she did kindness with her deceased husband. She tried to build a legacy for him. She could have gone for younger men. She went for Boaz, the relative of her deceased husband, Machlon. She did kindness with her mother-in-law. She is gleaning from the field to try to provide for her elderly mother-in-law. So I just tell us that Ruth, and though the book of Ruth, and of course the persona of Ruth, it's all about kindness. The whole book and her whole story is exuding kindness. Yet what nation does she come from? She comes from a nation that not only does not have kindness, they have anti-kindness. To the degree that they are eternally disincluded, the males at least, from the Jewish people. They have such a gross, egregious lack of kindness, yet the daughter of the Moabites exhibits superlative kindness worthy of an entire book being added to the canon. How do we again reconcile this contradiction? Modesty from immodesty, kindness from anti-kindness. And again, Ruth is always bucking the trend. The Moabite nations, that's a nation of idolaters. And Ruth, of course, is willing to forfeit all for true faith. She's again behaving in the polar opposite way than what you would expect. Moreover, Ruth, we said she's a princess. And the Talmud tells us that she's a direct descendant of Balak. Balak is the king of Moab that hired Bilaam in the book of Numbers to go curse the Jewish people. Talmud tells us that Ruth is the granddaughter of Eglon, who is the son of Balak, the king of Moab. So it's kind of ironic she spans two very opposite monarchs. She's the great-granddaughter of Balak, the failed monarch king of of, uh, of Moab, and she's the great-grandmother of David, the eternal king of the Jewish people. But again, we see that she comes from very poor stock, and yet someone so righteous, so pure, so holy, emerges from someone so evil and so corrupt. I think that's a very fundamental question about Ruth. How does she have what she has? How does she exhibit the great characteristics that she has? So I want to suggest an idea. 
Maybe it's the central theme of Ruth's story, and maybe it would explain the total metamorphosis, the total transformation that she undergoes, and maybe also might explain its connection to Shavuos, to Sinai, and to Torah. Our sages tell us that even though her antecedents, we spoke about Lot, Lot's daughters, the Moabite nation in general, Balak, all of her antecedents are all corrupt. Yet our sages tell us there was a kernel of righteousness and holiness and kindness and modesty in each one of them. So let's start with Lot, the great-great-great-granddaddy of Moab. Lo, we're told, had an association with Abraham. In fact, when Abraham is trying to quell the dispute between his shepherds and Lot's shepherds, he approaches Lot and tells him, there shouldn't be a battle between us. After all, we're brothers. And they were, of course, related. But Rashi there tells us that, that they had a similar visage. What this means is that there's some overlap, there's some similarity between Abraham, one of the greatest people that have ever lived, and Lot, not that great of a character. Abraham, of course, represents kindness, and Lot, to a certain degree, also had some kindness. And we see, of course, even though he was really messed up, but we see the kind of kindness that he dispenses to the angels masquerading as men visiting Sodom and Gomorrah, before they overturn it, we see that he does resemble Abraham in a little bit. But we're told, Abraham tells us, that we're brothers. Him and Lot are brothers. They're not the same. But there's some kernel that's within Lot that is not manifested, that's not present. It's latent. It's embedded within him. There's some similarity to Abraham. And when is that fully manifested? When is that brought to fruition? When is that actualized? It's actualized in his great-great-great-great-granddaughter in Ruth. Similarly, let's go to Lot's daughters, Ruth's other antecedents. The Talmud in the book of Nazar, page 23b, going into 24a, tells us a very shocking statement. A person should always run, do a mitzvah. You should run. Don't, don't tarry. Don't dither before doing a mitzvah. Run to do a mitzvah. Why? Because two daughters of Lot that ran to do a mitzvah. Which mitzvah they run to do? Repopulate the world. Be with their father. And because the elder daughter ran first, she spent the first night with her father Lot, Therefore, she joined the Jewish people, or her line joined the Jewish people, four generations earlier. And you have you have Ruth, and then Oved, and then Yishai, and then David. And only the following generation do you have Rechavam, who comes from the other sister, from Amon. So why did the Moabites merge with the Jewish nation, or at least one part of it merge with the Jewish nation, four generations before the Ammonite nation merged with the Jewish nation? Well, it's because the elder daughter preempted the younger daughter by one night. That's what the Talmud says. But it is a shocking statement. The Talmud says, you should run to do a mitzvah. And what's the lesson? Or what's the source that you should run to a mitzvah and don't tarry? Don't dither? From the two sisters, the daughters of Lot, going to spend a night with their father? Is that what a mitzvah is? Doesn't sound like a mitzvah to me. That sounds like incest. That sounds like a grave sin. How could the Talmud label this activity as a mitzvah? And what our sages are revealing to us is that, of course, this wasn't a mitzvah. In fact, even for non-Jews... They don't have a sister theme mitzvahs. This will be included in the prohibition of, of, of forbidden relationships. What it's telling us is, yes, Lot's daughters did something really repulsive, repugnant, prohibited, corrupt, a sin. But you know what? There was a little kernel 
of righteousness in it. There was a little component of what they did that was done properly, that was done for the sake of heaven, willing to spend a night with a man for some good intentions, even though it's done on the sinful context. And that is, to a certain degree, a kernel of a mitzvah. And when does that get actualized? Of course, with Ruth. Ruth also spends a night with a man, also to do a mitzvah for a good cause. But that, of course, was actually a full mitzvah. It wasn't a sin at all. And that good intention, so to speak, is baked in to the, the recesses, so to speak, the abyss of the character. And then it comes out to fruition with Ruth. So we see Lot has some kindness. It comes out with Ruth. His daughters have a little bit of righteousness, a mitzvah, if you will, and that also comes to fruition with Ruth. What about Balak? Balak is maybe one of the most, the worst villains of all time. Is there anything redeeming about him? The Talmud tells us that yes. And again, this is another shocking statement from the same page of Talmud in the book of Nazir 23b. Rabbi Yehuda says in the name of Rav, a, pers- a person should always do a mitzvah and study Torah, even if it's not with pure motivations. Why? Because when you do some things with imperfect motivations, eventually it will, it will lead to doing something with good motivations. And what is the source? What is the example of someone who did something with bad motivations, but it ended up okay? That is learned from Balak. Why? What did he try to do? He tried to do a mitzvah. What mitzvah did he do? Well, he brought 42 sacrifices. When did he bring 42 sacrifices? When he's hiring Bilam to go curse the Jewish people. He did a mitzvah. Of course, the intentions were very not noble. But you know what? It ended up pretty good for him because he got Ruth as his descendant. It's an amazing idea here. Cursing the Jewish people. Attempted genocide. It's a mitzvah, albeit with imperfect intentions. That's a mitzvah? You brought sacrifices? That's a mitzvah? Again, there's a very deep idea here. No one is claiming that Balak was righteous. No, he was a wicked person. He was, again, a tyrant who tried to genocide the Jewish people. But you know what? His evil... He did with a mitzvah. His evil, he did with sacrifices. Other people did evil. Haman, other people did did evil without a mitzvah. And he did it with a mitzvah. There was some slight scintilla of a kernel of righteousness that existed within him. That again is latent, is hidden, and is, is actualized, is brought to the forefront, is manifested with Ruth. Of course, this is a very powerful lesson for us. You know, if that's considered a mitzvah, looks like we're in good shape, you know, trying to curse the Jewish people, eat dead sacrifices. If that's a mitzvah, and that will eventually yield something really good, well then, it looks like, you know, of course, if we do an, a- an actual mitzvah, and maybe our intentions aren't so noble, but you know what? It's incredibly good, because eventually it will yield something perfect. But what the sages are revealing to us, that even Balak, even trying to do genocide, there was something different about this tyrant, about this villain, than all the other villains. He did it with a mitzvah. And that little kernel of holiness, of righteousness, flows all the way to Ruth when it explodes, when it flowers into one of the great heroines of Jewish history. Back to our original question. Where does Ruth come from? Where does this holiness emanate from impurity? Where does this modesty come from total gross immodesty? Where does the kindness, how does that descend from the anti-kindness? How does David come from Balak? What our sages were revealing to us is there was something within her, within her people, within her nation, that was righteous, that was modest, that was kind on the smallest scale possible. And what Ruth did and what Ruth embodies 
is the fanning of the flames of the embers of holiness that she had within within her. She took that little kernel that existed within her and she brought that out and she actualized that. And she had that manifest within her to the degree that was no longer latent. It was a fiery burning beacon of kindness, of modesty, of holiness, of righteousness, of David. She took the Balak, she took the most corrupt king, and she found the good part of him, and she made that into into King David. We talk about conversion. And same question. We said Ruth is a convert, Sinai's conversion. What's conversion? You have someone who does not have a Jewish soul. And somehow there's this total transformation. We talk about Messiah. We talk about King David. King David, of course, is the standard for Messiah. What's Messiah? Taking the world, the corrupt world that we have today, and making it all righteous? How does that happen? It happens the way Ruth happens. Everyone, everything has some flicker of holiness in it. And Ruth teaches us how to take the latent flicker. It could be the tiniest flicker of holiness. Take that little spark and convert that and fan that into, into being a great fiery beacon. And maybe this kind of wraps together or connects, unites the various ideas. It says conversion is about Sinai. Conversion is about Ruth. And that's maybe the, the lesson. We talked about Nasev and Ishma. We will do, we will listen. The decision, maybe what it's revealing to us is the total transformation of Ruth how she was able to actualize the small flickers of holiness that she had within her, that was because she made the courageous decision, the Nasev and Ishma, we will do and we will listen, that is what converted the flicker into a beacon. Rabbi Kiva, I say this, tell us, you go study, that's it, you become great. But wait a minute, what if someone is not Supposed to become great. What if they don't have any greatness within them? How can you say they're just going to study, making that decision, saying Nasev and Ishma, we will do, we will listen. How could you say that that's going to result in you becoming great? The answer, of course, is greatness is baked into every person. Everyone has at least a flicker, something you have of greatness. And your decision, your Ruth, Rabbi Kiva decision to say, I'm in? That is what exposes that fire. And once it starts and once it grows, it's going to, it's going to manifest. It's going to flower. It's going to surface from within a person's depths. Who, of course, embodies that more than anyone else? That's, of course, Ruth. And the festival of Shavuos is about connecting to the internal kernel of holiness that we all have within us. And you know what? For descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we don't need to find a flicker. Oh, Lot had some similarity to Abraham. Oh, his daughters who did a terrible sin, there was some modicum of righteousness associated with it. Oh, Balak, yeah, he tried to kill a whole nation, but you know what? He did a mitzvah as well. Ruth had a really tiny flicker. That's what she had. And even that tiny flicker could result in King David, Messiah, in this whole book, and all that kindness, and all that modesty. If she could do it, what about us? What kind of flame do we have within us? Ruth represents the transformation of Sinai, the transformation of conversion, and the ideal that every single person has holiness, has greatness within them, and if they do the right thing, and if they make the commitment, and they have the commitment of, of Ruth, the total commitment, the Nasev and Ishma, the Sinai commitment, guaranteed they'll become great. So I think the lesson that we take with us for the year upcoming, Sinai, Shavuos, Ruth, they all represent the same thing. They represent actualization of holiness that we all have within us. There's latent potential for greatness baked into every person. And you know what? If you happen to be fortunate enough to descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have a lot of latent holiness within you. And what do you do to unearth that? What did Ruth do to unearth her latent holiness, small as it may have been 
from within her, it was all about a decision. It's all about a nasa manishma. And you know what? You can make that decision, but if it's half-hearted, you look like Arpa. Not only will it not improve you, it may, God forbid, lead you down a very poor path, possibly. But Ruth, and of course Rabbi Tiva, show us how it is done. That's lesson of the day. On this day, we say, this is the day that takes the ordinary people and makes them transformationally great. Because every person has that ability within them. When Tosfos talks about Rabbi Tiva going to study, he doesn't qualify and say, well, some people, when they go study, to become great. Every person. If you are alive, if you have a soul, you have more holiness than you could possibly even fathom. You have greatness beyond what you could possibly even concoct in your wildest imaginations. If Ruth could do it with her decidedly checkered past, shall we say. And again, our sages are laboring to find some little good thing about Lot, about his daughters, about Balak. And it seems to be like, really? That's what, that's all you found? <laughs> and look what she became. Look how she fanned those embers that she had within her to become great. And my hope is, our hope is that at, over Shavuos and over the course of the year upcoming, we take this lesson to heart. We identify the holiness that we have within ourselves. We make the commitment to unearth it. And if we do that, it too will take hold. And once the fire is fanned, it's going to grow and progressively influence us and surface, and we too will hopefully become great. My email address is rabbitwobajiba.com. You can always email me with any questions or comments.